If you believe God is good, give him a hand praise. Amen. It really is a privilege for me to be here this weekend with you to deposit God's word into your life and to partner with him in what he is already doing in and through you. If you don't know me, my name is Rich Bowman and I serve as one of the campus pastors here at our downtown Durham campus. Yes. Shout out to my Duke and NCCU peeps. Yeah. It's only a handful, but we represent. I like it. I like it. Listen, I'm going to be honest with you. Preaching to college students are some of my favorite people to preach to because y'all are the closest thing to preaching in a black church. I know y'all like to talk back to the preacher. And that's the type of church I grew up in, all right? And so you got my full permission to shout hallelujah, to say amen, to say preach, preacher. Whatever it is you want to do, I want you to feel free to encounter and experience Jesus tonight. Amen? Why don't you join me in a quick word of prayer? Father, our greatest need tonight is to behold Christ. It is to see Jesus. God, that we might walk out of these doors tonight never the same. So, Father, I pray that I wouldn't get in the way of that, God, but I would help usher, God, my brothers and sisters in this room tonight to see Christ. That, God, as I lift you up, that you would draw us to you. And, Father, I pray that you would give me clarity of mind and precision of speech to articulate your word in a way, God, that glorifies you. Father, we thank you for this opportunity, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've ever spent any time studying American history, you ought to be familiar and acclimated with a historic war called the Civil War. As tensions grew between northern and southern states over the issue of slavery and a variety of other social and political issues, these two regions of our nation had a fight. And one of the most significant memories and moments during the middle of this war was when Abraham Lincoln decreed the Emancipation Proclamation, granting freedom to nearly four million Negro slaves in Southern rebellion states. However, if you were to dig a bit deeper into history, and if you were to study what life was like for many Negroes after the Emancipation Proclamation, you would soon find out that the freedom they were promised was not the way that they were treated in practice. In fact, a hundred years later after the Emancipation Proclamation, on August 28, 1963, Reverend and civil rights activists Martin Luther King stood on the stairs of Lincoln Memorial, and in his famous I Have a Dream speech, he opened up with these words. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree is a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. 
It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity from slavery. But 100 years later, the Negro is still not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still badly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. 2,000 years ago, there was a divine emancipation proclamation that was decreed by God, signed by the death of Jesus, and sealed by his resurrection so that people from every generation of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language could be set free from the shackles of sin and death. But see, there are some of you in here who are still bound to the shackles of sin and death because you have chosen to reject Jesus. But for those of us who have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior and who have submitted to his lordship, even though we would say this momentous good news of the gospel served as a great beacon light of hope, we are still living as if we are not free and victorious in Jesus Christ. We are crippled in our conscience by the shame of sexual failure. We are oppressed in our, in our hearts, in our souls, over the guilt of inconsistent prayer and Bible reading. We are crushed in our souls with this nagging sensation that God is harboring some sense of resentment and anger towards us. And we live in this constant state and tyranny of trying to perform, to earn God's love and approval. Thus we live as if on a lonely island of discouragement, languishing in the corner of defeat. But if there is any chapter in the Bible where God shouts from the hills of heaven that you are free, and he shouts from the mountaintops of eternity that you have victory, it is Romans chapter 8. Some have even called this the greatest chapter in the entire Bible, calling it the inner sanctuary of the cathedral of the Christian faith, portraying some of the most beautiful blessings and wonderful promises that we have in Jesus Christ. And in the little bit of time that I have with you tonight, I just want to invite you to look at two of those promises in the opening verses. Number one, we are free from the penalty of sin. And number two, we are free from the power of sin. We are free from the penalty of sin, and we are free from the power of sin. Let's look at the first one together. Beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation. I want you to repeat that after me. Say, no, no. Condemnation. condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
I want you to notice that Paul begins this verse with the word, therefore. This is Paul's way of saying, in light of what I just said, the fact of the matter is this. And so the question is, what did Paul just say in order to come to the conclusion that we are free from the penalty and the condemnation of sin? Well, what Paul is doing is he is connecting this declaration of freedom to a logical argument that he's been making in the last seven chapters in the book of Romans, specifically that all men everywhere have fallen short of obeying God's law. And we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, there is no amount of adherence to the law. There is no amount of adherence to good works that could ever save us. There is no amount of adherence to any of those things that could ever give us right relationship with God. There is no adherence to any of those things that could ever remove the curse of sin away. Only the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ that is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe by faith. And when we believe by faith, God justifies us, meaning that he declares us righteous and removes the penalty of sin. And it's off the heels of that argument that we at last come to this magnificent declaration that the fact of the matter is there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This phrase in Christ Jesus refers to a, to a union that happens by which Christ joins himself to those who put their faith in him. And everything that is Jesus Christ becomes ours. If Jesus Christ is declared righteous before the Father, then we too are declared righteous before the Father. If Jesus Christ is declared as God's beloved Son, with whom he is well pleased, with God, God's beloved Son, in whom he sees no flaws, then we too are God's beloved sons and daughters, with whom he is well pleased, and he sees no flaw in us. If the status of Jesus Christ before the Father is favored, faultless, accepted, and free, then guess what? Your status is favored, faultless, accepted, and free. But oh, that's not to say we haven't done anything that is deserving of God's judgment. The Bible overwhelmingly affirms, as I mentioned before, that we have all sinned against God and fallen short of obeying his law perfectly and fallen short of the glory of God. For that is what Romans 3.23 would say. All have sinned and fallen short of that. We are all guilty of loving created things like money, sex, power, and acceptance more than we are in love with our creator. We are all guilty of rejecting God's way of truth for our own perceived way of truth. We are all guilty of being so self-absorbed that we fail to love others and to love God as we ought to and to sin against our maker, the one who rules every square inch of the universe, the one who sustains your life day in and day out. 
the one who gave your life purpose and meaning and said that you were made in his image and you are the apex of his creation and you have value. The one who is infinite and worth to sin against him. Oh, it is the crime of highest treason. It is an act of supreme infidelity and disloyalty. And because God is just, it is his duty to see that our evil is punished and right is vindicated. Therefore, if God was to treat us according to what our sins deserved, then we'd all be condemned to hell. But oh, praise God. Oh, praise God that he is not tight-fisted with mercy, but he's (laughs) open-handed. Praise God that he is not stingy with grace, but he digs into his pockets and he's generous with it. (laughs) Praise God that he is lavish with his mercy, so much so that when we enrolled ourselves willfully into the university of sin and we worked up a debt that can only be paid in full by death. Our God who is gracious, our God who is compassionate, our God who is good, he sent the Savior to pay for it all. And we, when we put our faith in him, oh, that death is given to our account. And that is good news, church. That is good news. It reminds me of, a, of, of something, an old man by the name of John Flavel. He wrote it, it was called The Father's Bargain. 1600, a minister from the 1600s. And as he was thinking about what God had done for us through Jesus Christ and just in awe of it, he began to imagine this conversation that was happening in heaven between God the Father and God the Son. And the Father began by saying this, my son, Here's a company of poor souls that are exposed to my justice. Justice demands punishment for them, or justice will be satisfied in their eternal ruin. What should we do for these souls? The son replied, oh, my father, such is my love too and compassion for them that rather than they perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their payment. Bring in all their bills that I may see what they owe you. Bring them all in that there may be no penalty for them ever again. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. The father replied saying, but my son, if you pay for it, pay for it for them. You must pay every penny, every drop of it, every last mite with no exceptions. If I spare them, I will not spare you. The son replied and said, let it be so. (laughs) Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it will cost me, though it will impoverish all my riches and empty all my treasures, I am content to go through with it. Oh, I don't know about you, but that's good news to me. That is good news. That is a good report from heaven to me because here's the deal. If Jesus paid for it all, then the verdict is in. 
you are not guilty. There is no more judgment. There is no such thing as condemnation in your relationship to God. His anger has been completely removed. His wrath is completely gone. And he does not treat you as if you were guilty. But I get it. I get it. I get it. It's hard to believe. It's so difficult to believe. Because when you look at yourself in the mirror of God's word, and you start comparing yourself to other devoted Christians, you start having this lingering sense that I just don't measure up. And then I'm continually missing the mark over and over and over and over again. And you're being pulled down by guilt. And you tend to relate to God as if you're on probation. And he's just waiting for the one moment for you to mess up and pull you back into his prison of disfavor. Even when you open the scriptures, it's hard for you to comprehend the boundless love and the boundless grace and the boundless compassion that God has for you. And all it does is when you open the scripture, it just intensifies the condemnation that you have. You are usually more aware of your own failures, of your own sin, of how much you're missing the mark than you are aware of God's love for you. And you're constantly putting yourself on trial over and over and over again as if Jesus didn't go to trial in your place already. Has anybody been there before? Okay, I'm going to go to the truth-telling side over here. Has anybody been there before? The fact of the matter is, God will not put you on trial for what he's already put Jesus on trial for in your place. God will not condemn you for what he has already condemned Jesus for in your place. And his relationship to us is not that of a judge to a criminal. It is that of a father to his children who receives us, who accepts us, who delights in us, even on our worst days, even in our worst weeks, even in our worst moments. One of the best illustrations of this was of a, a story I heard of another, from another pastor once. He told the story of a lady who made her life and her living outside of Rio de Janeiro. And she had a daughter. And her daughter was extremely beautiful. And her one fear was that when her daughter grew up, her daughter would leave and go to try to find a life in Rio de Janeiro. And she knew that if her daughter did that because she was extremely beautiful, she knew what would happen to her daughter. And then one day, the greatest fear of that mother came true. The mother came home and she found a note on the table. And she picked it up and the note said, I've gone to Rio to find a life. And the heart of the mother dropped. It sank. But the mother knew what she needed to do. 
And so she packed all her belongings and she got the little money that she had and she grabbed a purse and she found her way to the bus stop and she got on the bus and she headed to Rio. And the first thing she did is when she got to Rio, and she made her way into a photo booth and uh, she began to put the money in and began to snap photos of herself. And, and after she finished making all the photos that she could of herself, she went searching. And she searched in every bar, in every club, in every hotel, in every restaurant, and everywhere she went, she left a photo of herself. She ran out of money. And she went home. One night, the daughter is coming down the stairs, stumbling. She had become a prostitute. Looked like she aged 15 years. And as she's walking down the stairs, feeling like she's about to lose her life, she notices a mirror on the wall. And she's looking at herself in the mirror. And all of a sudden, something catches her eye. It's a picture of her mother. And, it, and she's in shock. And she, so she grabs the picture. And she turns it around. And on the back of the picture, it says, I do not care what you have done. And I do not care who you have become. Come home to me. I do not care what you have done. I do not care who you have become. Please come home. I know that there are things in your life that you will never tell anyone because you're so ashamed. I know that you think you are defined by your present sins and your present mistakes and your present failures. And I know that sometimes you are afraid of what you might become and what you might do in the future. But at the same time, I believe God the Father is saying, I do not care what you have done and I do not care who you have become. My son, Jesus Christ, has paid for it all. It is no longer on your record. Your sins have been forgiven and they have been forgotten in the sea of forgetfulness. And God does not deal with you according to your mistakes. All your sins in the past, all your sins in the present, and all your sins in the future have been removed. And I know that's hard to believe. I know it's difficult to believe. Because I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. There's one thing I struggled with the most was to believe that God loved me the way that he says that he does. But I have to be convinced that if he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, gosh, it got to be true. But that's not it. 
God didn't free us from the penalty of sin only to leave us enslaved to the power of sin. Off the heels of Paul dealing with our vertical status and position before the Lord as being free from the penalty of sin, he now transitions into talking about us being free from sin's power. Look at what he says in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has done what? He has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It's important for you, for me to note that the use of the word law has little to do with the moral commands of God. And it has more to do with the type of authority or a type of force that is at work. Similar to the universal law of gravity that is so powerful and is so authoritative that it pulls everything with mass down. There is a universal law that is at work in, in humanity called sin and death. And it's a law that governs and rules within those who are not in Christ Jesus, making them prisoners of sin's grip and exposing them to the full penalty of death that is to come. But in the same way <laughs> that the law of aerodynamics can make a plane defy gravity, the same way that the law of aerodynamics is a lot more powerful than gravity, I'm here to tell you that the law of the spirit of life is a greater and more powerful law than the law of sin and death, which means that the same power that indwelt Jesus Christ and empowered him to obey the will of the Father is the same power that is in you and I and the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead is the same resurrection power in you and me. And so that means when you are all alone and it's late at night and you're bored and you start to feel that gravitational pull to look at pornography, you don't have to because by the power of the Spirit, you can have pleasure in Jesus. When you so severely and desperately want to be wanted and you keep going from relationship to relationship to relationship, looking for attention and affection. Oh, by the power of the Spirit, you don't have to. You can be content in Jesus. When you attempted to take the easy way out and cheat on an assignment, oh, you don't have to because by the power of the Spirit, you can show integrity. But you say, Rich, man, I, but I, but I try, man. Rich, you don't understand. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. And I've struggled over and over and over again. Oh, can I remind you of something? Struggle is a sign of freedom. Somebody got it. That must be my man, Excellence. I see you, brother. Struggle is a sign of freedom. It was Jerry Bridges who said, you see, unbelievers don't struggle with sin because they are bound to it. 
They may seek to overcome a bad habit, but they don't see that habit as sin. They do not have a sense of sinning against a holy God and a God who died for them. But believers, on the other hand, we struggle with sin as sin. And when we see our sinful words and our sinful thoughts and our sinful actions and our sinful patterns, we are convicted by the Holy Spirit or either our consciences are severely bothered. But it's at that point when we need to remember and go back to the gospel of Jesus Christ because if you wallow there too long, you're going to believe that you're condemned. You see, our ability to live in victory over sin's power is never disconnected to remembering the freedom that we have from sin's penalty. It was Milton Vincent, Vincent the author of Gospel Primer, who said these words. As, we are, as long as we are stricken with the guilt of our sins, we will be functionally captive to them. And we will often find ourselves recommitting the very sins about which we feel most guilty. Oh, that devil, he knows that if he can keep us tormented by sin's guilt, he can dominate us with sin's power. The gospel, however, slays sin at its root point and thereby cancels sin's power over me and you. The forgiveness of God made known to me through the gospel. It liberates me from sin's power because it liberates me first from sin's guilt. And preaching such forgiveness to myself is a practical way of putting the gospel into operation as the nullifier of sin's power in my life. In other words, when we are dwelling in the gospel, by meditating on it and living in it and singing about it and praying through it, something begins to happen in our hearts where there's a desire to obey this Savior from a heart of joy and appreciation because he loves us. But at the same time, the obedience that comes out of that, it is empowered by the Spirit of God that is in us. And here's why I'm going to have to put on my black preaching voice. You better believe that if the Spirit of God is in us, then we are not slaves bound to shackles. We are children bound to freedom. You better believe that if the Spirit of God is in us, then we are not prisoners bound to chains. We are children released for victory and guess what <laughs> Satan he might try to huff <laughs> and he might try to puff <laughs> and he might try to blow your faith down <laughs> but guess what if Jesus is for you who can be against you <laughs> if Jesus is for you you are more than conquerors in this Christ Jesus and so in the great words of that old Negro spiritual. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Hallelujah and amen. Oh, y'all ain't get that. Y'all ain't get that. Y'all are free at last. Y'all are free at last.
And listen, as we, I'm, I'm done, I'm done, and it's time for y'all to respond. <laughs> but I know that there are some of you in here who don't know Christ. I know, I know that. You've heard the gospel today, and you got a choice to make. Today, today, God stands before you with two arms out. One saying, come on, come on. Here's my grace, here's my, here's my mercy, here's my compassion, come on. Do you see what Christ has done for you? That hand is out. And there's another hand holding back the wrath of God. Do you understand that one day both of those hands will drop? That one day, either when Jesus returns or when he takes you, that there will be no more grace. There will be no more calling you. There will be no more mercy. And you will experience the judgment of God. I don't want it for you. And I believe God doesn't want it for you. And that's why he sent the Savior. And you need to talk with somebody you came today. Talk with somebody you who brought you today about this gospel and about where you stand. But then there are those of you who you've received Christ and you you know this to be true. But there's a gap between what you know and what you feel. And you just need to plead with God to to help you believe that this promise is yes and amen for you in Christ Jesus. You need to plead with him. You need to beg him. You need to get some brothers and sisters around you to labor and intercede in prayer on your behalf and pray the gospel over you until joy and freedom wells up in your heart. I just want to give you a moment to do that. I want to give you a moment to do that. And then I just want you to share what God is doing, what God has done through this time, what God is doing in that moment of prayer with someone that you came with. And our worship team will come back and lead us.